You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. 21 through 23. Hear God's word to God's people this morning. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. You may be seated. Who is Jesus? And we presented this question, uh, this Advent, because that's what Advent is intended to do. It's to answer for all who ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is this baby in a manger? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Who is this one who has been named so because he will save his people from their sins? So who is Jesus? This morning I'll answer that most consequential of questions in part by explaining to us our relationship to Jesus. And the term I'm going to use is irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable differences. Now though it's not a legal term, It was often used, and it was actually popularized when no-fault divorce was made legal in California in the 60s, 1960s. There were marriages where the spouse who sought divorce without even having a legal uh, grounds for divorce like abuse and adultery, they could then cite irreconcilable differences as the basis or the reason for divorce. Now, without commenting on that law or what has been done to to make it easy to get a divorce. And to be clear, I'm not advocating an ease of divorce here, but what I want to bring to our attention this morning is the term irreconcilable differences because that's an appropriate and a very accurate description of the relationship that we have apart from Christ with God. In answering the question, who is Jesus? as fallen creatures, as by nature sinners, we have irreconcilable differences with God. And by his very nature, God's very nature, who's righteous and pure, he is good, he is perfect. In a word, he is holy. There is this unbridgeable gap. There was this, this, un, this um, separation, this infinite chasm that separates us who are corrupt from that which is perfect, God. Now we're reminded of that, the perfection of God, as we see Paul describing to the Colossian church who Jesus is by way of a hymn that was sung by the early church. We just sung it in worship this morning. Now this hymn, as we've explored in the past two weeks, is in verses 14 through 20 
of Colossians chapter 1. And this hymn, it reaches the heights of Christology. It's a passage that's so unique and so, so in sync with the rest of Scripture, especially in fulfillment of all that was written in the Old Testament, which was a mystery, but now it's being fulfilled and revealed in full in one person, Jesus Christ. The one person who is unlike any other, who is fully God and fully man. He is the second person of the triune God. He is God the Son. He is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Now Paul encouraged the church here at Colossae and he's encouraging us this morning by God's preserved word that in no uncertain terms that Jesus is God, he makes God visible to us because he is God. Jesus is God. He is God of very God. He is one in being with a father and he is creator. He is a creator that who has made all that we see and all that we don't see. And furthermore, nothing happens in this world, in this life, in a billion lifetimes before us and in a billion lifetimes after us where he is not in full control. He holds our very breath in his hand because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And even more, as we learned last week, he's responsible for the new creation. New birth and new creation are possible all because he raised, he raised from the dead. He was resurrected from the dead. He is the head of the church because he is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. And then Paul, in verse 21, he makes a very dramatic pivot. It's as if to point out that the difference is so remarkable it was meant to capture not just the attention of the Colossian church, but I believe it was to highlight the love of the head of the body for the church. It was to reveal the justice of the creator. It was to demonstrate the very nature and the full expression of God in and through Jesus, precisely to answer the question, who is Jesus by declaring what he has done? Paul is continuing to answer the question for us of who Jesus is by declaring what he has done. Now, Paul, he just sang the praises as we did this morning of Jesus in taking us to the heights of the doctrine of Christ, his majesty and his power in verses 14 through 20. And then he says this in verse 21, and you, and you, now, it's hard to determine tone in some passages of the Bible, but context and punctuation and grammar certainly help. Now, in this case, Paul's not calling out the Colossians in an accusatory manner because as you read his letter up to this point, you get a sense that what Paul is saying and you is a point of encouragement. It's a point of encouragement. We'll see that more as we unpack these three verses. But before we move on, I do want to make us aware of a vital doctrine presented here this morning. It is, a, it is a doctrine that is core to the gospel. And the Apostle Paul, he expresses this in one sentence 
which is what these three verses are, verses 21, 22, and 23, it's one sentence. And then Paul, in one of the most concise statements, which is really amazing when you consider the supreme significance of what he is saying, Paul is taking us into the heart of the gospel. He's taking us into the heart of the gospel by opening up to us the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement for my sin. It's substitutionary atonement for your sin and for the sin of his people. To get even more specific here, there's another term that's added to that, and that's referred to as penal substitutionary atonement. It's penal because it's required by a perfect God who is just, and there's a penalty to be paid for that sin. And the penalty is satisfied by Christ for us, who is our substitutionary atonement. So he is our perfect substitute because he is our only substitute. Now, someone may say, well, if God is loving, if God is all-powerful, does he need to sacrifice Jesus? Can't he just forgive my sin? If that were the case, that would be inconsistent with the very nature of God being just and loving. Why? Because the consequences of sin would not be dealt with. Did you hear that? The consequences of sin would not be dealt with. Not just the death that sin ultimately brings, but the distortion of reality, the breakdown of truth, the pain and the suffering caused by selfishness, murder, not just physical murder, but murder of the heart. All sorts of sin reverberating to and affecting so many. Church, our sin, though we're individually responsible, our sin is not just personal. Our sin is social. All sin, whether outward or inward, sin deceptively carried out or overtly committed. Our sin affects those surrounding us, and it does so for generations to come. It would be unrealistic, church, to find someone who doesn't know this because we have all experienced the effects of sin because that's who we are by nature. In God's righteousness and justice, there needs to be a satisfaction of that justice for sin that only comes through life and this life is in the blood, hence the flesh. For you note takers, take a look at Leviticus chapter seven, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. This life that that the Lord is talking about is one that needs to meet the perfect standards that is required by a perfect God. And that is why Jesus said, a body, Father, you have prepared for me to do your will. 
And so to help us understand that will, the will of the Father to have his Son die for our sins so that we may come to him, in addition to the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, I want to introduce to you another term that describes what Jesus did perfectly that helps explain what happened to Christ on the cross. And that's the word propitiation. We have penal substitutionary atonement and we have propitiation. Thank you for your patience. We're moving on. Propitiation is what happened. This is important. Propitiation is what happened as Christ willingly submitted himself as a substitute on our behalf on the cross. The Greek word propitiation, helasterion, this is what it means. It's an appeasing or satisfying of righteous wrath with such a force, with such a force that it fully satisfies the wrath. And in doing so, pay attention, it changes God's wrath for us into favor. It changes God's wrath for us now into favor. He is satisfied. And that's why this sacrifice needed to be perfect. And that is what Jesus did for us. So with that background, we're going to see here in verses 21 and especially verse 22, the gospel. Paul pointing out to the church the very necessity for the substitutionary atonement of Christ based on the irreconcilable differences that we have with God. Now these differences are not only irreconcilable, but they are an affront to God. Why? Because our sin is against God. Our sin is hostile. Our sin is evil. Those are strong words, but those are God's words through the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 of Colossians 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's us before Christ. And here's the good news. Listen to God's word for you this morning. Verse 21, 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He is now reconciled in his body, us to God, in his body of flesh by his death. Now, when Jesus said his food, his sustenance, his very, what, what drove him was to do the will of my father. When Jesus said that the son of man was to suffer many things and on the third day rise again, this was what he was talking about. The very act of making the irreconcilable whole. Restoring us to the Father by satisfying the justice required for sin. It's now accomplished in full by his death. And that's why, church, we can rejoice in awe. We can rejoice now in gratitude. During our call to worship where Isaiah wrote of Christ's substitutionary atonement, we hear of his love. We hear of his love where we can now experience peace through a true and final reconciliation with God because Jesus had suffered the chastisement of the Father in his body of flesh. We can now experience the healing of being reconciled 
to God, no longer alienated from him because the father punished the son on our behalf. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We are healed. It is God the Father who exacted this punishment for our sake. And it is God the Son who willingly laid down his life so that he may experience the unity that he had with the glory of God the Father. And through his perfect and through his humble and through his willing sacrifice and obedience, an obedience that was to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Paul reinforces, he expands on this truth in this doctrine, specifically later in this letter. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, he begins with the same words. Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses in the circum- uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, not by a wave of his hand, but by nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. This is what happened as Jesus reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Who is Jesus? Now in these two verses that made up the first half of this sentence, I want us to take a look now at the last clause or that last portion of verse 22. When Paul describes the unimaginable love and justice fully expressed in what Jesus has done for us, we can see the why behind the triune God's love for us. Look at verse 21 again. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Here's the why, church. In order to present you holy. In order to present you, his church, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What grace. This is grace that is lavished beyond measure upon you. This is God's grace lavished upon, beyond measure upon you. Some have called this the great exchange, which it is, but it's actually one of the most, or the most inequitable of transactions. Look at the comparison. That first part of that verse 21, alienation, hostility towards God, Evil deeds because of evil hearts. Contrast that now with being holy and blameless. And one day we will be presented before a holy God. In one sense, it makes no sense. But it makes sense because it was and is the only way 
its reality because it is true. It is true. All because Jesus has now reconciled us to the Father through his body, by his death. Because of what Jesus has done, we can now know who he is. So what now? What does that mean? In a word, it means everything. But Paul goes on to say in the second half of this sentence, in verse 23, Paul presents to us a condition which upon first reading may cause us to think, wait, does he negate what he just established in verse 22? That now we are reconciled, we have to keep ourselves reconciled? In other words, is our salvation contingent upon keeping our own selves saved? In a word, no. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works. Our salvation, as we just read, is fully and completely accomplished by Christ. But I want us to take a look, a close look at what Paul is in fact saying. And as intended, we'll see it as a necessary warning, but it will serve as an encouragement. Again, verse 22, he says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And here's the condition, verse 23, take a look at it. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard. There's a future reality, if you look at that ver- those verses, a future reality in order to present you holy, contingent on a present condition, if indeed you continue in the faith, but here's the glorious part of it. It's based upon a past event. He has now reconciled us. Now, if one were to no longer continue in the faith, if one were to be unstable and not trusting in God's word, challenging and even contesting, not just doubting, but contesting what God does indeed say. And if one were to shift their focus and their foundation to anyone other than Jesus, then yes, this person's salvation would be brought into question. You recall Jesus, his own conclusion to his Sermon on the Mount when he or she who is not trusting in the foundation, the rock that is Christ and his promises, when the rains and the storms come, they will be washed away. In Galatians 3.3, Paul exhorts us and he says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? And again, in Ephesians 4.20, he says, but that's not the way you learned Christ. By encouraging, Paul is encouraging, is that the fact is by faith we have trusted in the full and the complete and the final salvation secured by Jesus in his body of flesh by his death and resurrection for us. That is the gospel and that is our hope. And believers, as believers in that hope, as accepted sons and daughters of the Father, we can now live in newness of life. 
We can now live in newness of life because we can operate in confidence that we are forever his because of what Jesus has done. We are forever his by what Jesus has done. So the famous question, what does that look like? What does that mean? It means that the decisions we make, the focus of our thoughts, the things that we do because of the gospel, we can do it in the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. You remember our sin and the grief that it has caused, the grief that it causes. It's not just in our hearts, but to those who are affected by our sin and those of us who are affected by others' sin. I'm talking parents and children, husbands and wives, cousins and family members, friends, employees and employers, the obedience of faith brought about by Jesus reconciling us to the Father can now work its way out in and through us. How so? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, because we're forgiven by God and now we're forgiving others also and forgiven by others, he says this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are now invited into that ministry of reconciliation. And that's what Paul is saying by being steadfast, by being stable, because our hope lies solely not just in our actions, but our actions based on and fueled by the hope of the gospel. Again, because Jesus reconciled us to the Father, we can follow Jesus' words. We can abide in him. We can obey him. We can love one another. We can forgive one another so that our joy may be full. The gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ brings about in us the obedience of faith so that we can be holy even as our Father in heaven is holy. Amen? Richard Mellick, in his commentary on Colossians, he writes, Paul taught that those who know the truth will continue in the truth. They will not fall away. Indeed, the personal commitments made at conversion naturally produce a positive, lifelong commitment to Jesus. He then quotes another scholar and he reinforces his point. If it is true that the saints will persevere to the end, that's the statement. If it is true that the saints will persevere to the end, then it is equally true that the saints must persevere to the end. And that's what Paul means when he is saying, if indeed you continue in the faith. We continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel because it is Jesus who secured our faith. Because though we were once sinners, 
we are now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death for us. Brothers and sisters, fellow saints, this is who Jesus is. And he alone is our hope. So let us rejoice and let's glorify him. Amen? Let's pray. You alone are righteous and good and true. And in your righteousness, you required perfection and justice. And Father, in your love, you have provided all of that in your only son, Jesus. Lord, how deep is your love for us. And you've shown us our love. You've shown us your love for us, Lord, in that while we were yet sinners at full-on rebellion against you, Christ died for us. Lord, we thank you for this true and lasting reconciliation. And Lord, as we are learning the implications of this gospel, of who Jesus is, we pray that we live in the hope and the power of this gospel. Lord, that we would live to truly celebrate your glory. And we pray this in the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ, amen.